Bring the love of Wisconsin's outdoors in through the beauty and quality craftsmanship of Pella Windows and Doors. Lock in your prices by February 28th and get 0% interest for up to 48 months. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. We are seeing something that played out, oh, about 10 or 11 years ago repeat itself who says history does not repeat itself if you will remember back the 2012 all the way back to 2012 yet 2012 race for the united states senate the democratic candidate was at the time uh congresswoman tammy baldwin she was running for u.s senate the republican candidate ended up being tommy thompson former four-time governor of the state of Wisconsin. Yet in the general election, Tammy Baldwin won handily. And there's a lot of stuff that was going on. You know, why did this end up happening? Part of it was it was a Democratic year. Barack Obama was running for re-election, and he was at the top of the ticket, and he won re-election, and he won in Wisconsin. So that was part of the factor. But I, I think if people look back, one of the big determining factors in this case, in that race, was money. Tommy Thompson faced a very, very contested, I believe it was a four-way Republican primary. He emerged victorious, but what happened was all he, he spent all his money, all the campaign money, etc., he spent it in an effort to win the primary. So the primary rolls around in early September. Thompson wins. Great. Now, you know, Tommy Thompson is about as well-known uh, a politician as you can possibly imagine in Wisconsin. And back in 2012, <clears throat> I mean, he was still, he, he was within a decade of having, you know, won his fourth term as governor. Incredibly popular pol- pol- politician. Incredibly well-known. But he comes out of the September 2012 primary pretty much dead broke. And so for, I don't know, four or five, it seemed like forever, but for four or five weeks, the Thompson campaign for Senate was essentially running no advertising at all. Meanwhile, Tammy Baldwin had reserved and saved all this money, and they spent it. There were a ton of ads bolstering Baldwin, but also attacking Tommy Thompson. So the Thompson campaign was dark because it really didn't have money. And so what happened is by the time Tommy finally got engaged in the race from an advertising perspective, etc., you know, it seemed to me it was kind of like early October. But by then it was too late because Baldwin had defined Thompson for whatever. So, and she ended up winning handily. Now, there were, like I say, there were a lot of other factors that went into this as well, and I'm not suggesting that it was solely the fact that the Thompson campaign was essentially dark on advertising for several weeks, but it was definitely a factor. And if it was a factor when you're dealing with Tommy Thompson as a candidate, arguably the most well-known Wisconsin politician in most of our lifetimes, 
And if he couldn't survive not having advertising and being defined by his opponent, can you imagine what will happen or what is going to happen when you have a candidate who is nowhere near as defined as Tommy Thompson was? And that is precisely what is occurring in 2023. We have a state Supreme Court race that is coming up. Everybody knows the election is uh, Tuesday, April 4th. A very, very contested Republican or conservative primary. This it's it's nonpartisan, but there's a liberal candidate, Janet Pronasewitz, who is tied to the hip uh, with the Democratic Party. She has this has become a national race. She's got money pouring in from California. She's got money pouring in from New York. If she wins, she will be. Well, you know, she will be the Supreme Court Justice for Wisconsin, bought and paid for by California and New York. Her opponent is former Justice Dan Kelly, who came out at a very close uh, contested primary. He beat Waukesha Circuit Judge Jennifer Doro, very, very close. Um, now he's running. But what's happening is, I say he's running. You wouldn't necessarily know that if you watch TV or you listen to, like, radio ads. By early yesterday afternoon, here, here's how stark this is. And by the way, the, the anti-Kelly ads are already running, and there's pretty much no response. By early yesterday afternoon, liberal groups, liberal groups had reserved, get this, over $7 million in ads between now and the general election to either trash Kelly or to boost Protese, which is Wisconsin Supreme Court bid. Um so far, conservatives, again, haven't run any ads to boost Kelly. There is one of these special interest groups that has committed to putting in about $850,000. But so far, that's it. So you've got the liberals who are going to be spending $7 million plus, and, and that's just a fraction of what you're going to see, and very, very little response from conservatives. And with every day that goes by, and Dan Kelly is not able to match dollar for dollar, or arguably more than dollar for dollar, the advertising blitz against him, the more it looks like he's going to have, he's got an uphill battle, I think, to begin with, but the fact that you're dark, the fact that you're not matching the spending dollar for dollar, or at least close to that, it's it's the sign of, of a campaign that's going to be struggling mightily. So the question is going to be, are conservatives with money going to step up, and will they step up in a big way? Because right now, it's not happening, and it looks to me like it's shaping up as a potential replay of what happened to Tommy Thompson in 2012. Okay, let us get started. Hallelujah! Somebody is listening. We talk a lot about violence we talk a lot about gun violence. We talk about people committing crimes with guns. I agree that there are too many guns on the streets in the hands of the wrong people. But the question becomes, what are we willing to do about that? One of my great frustrations has been, when it seems like whenever we talk about a crime of violence, a, a shooting, a carjacking, you name it, it's almost always committed by somebody who, because they have a prior criminal record and because they are a felon, they're not allowed to possess the firearm in the first place, which kind of begs the question, what, what is going on here? 
why do so many felons have guns? Even though we tell them that they're not allowed to have guns, even though they know they're not allowed to have guns, they have guns. Well, I would argue that one of the reasons this happens is because they don't give a rat's rump about being caught with a gun because they're not afraid of the penalties. In Wisconsin, if you are a felon and you are caught with a firearm, you can you can face up to five years in prison and five years of extended supervision on top of that. I say can because there's nothing mandatory uh, about that. And frequently what you will find is that felon and possession charges, they, they really aren't treated seriously. They're rolled in with other sorts of crimes that might be committed. They're plea bargained away routinely. And the point is there's no deterrent fear at all. There is legislation which has been introduced. The uh, state assembly, they're holding a public hearing on this. Um, and what it would do, it would change the law, and it would say that people with felonies who get caught with a firearm would face a mandatory five-year prison sentence. Not optional, not Hey, um, you know, I'm going to give you five years, but I'm going to suspend it and put you on probation. No, it would say that if you are a felon and you get caught with a gun, you go to jail for five years. No excuses. Don't pass go. Don't collect two hundred dollars. You know that that is what is going to be the penalty. And by the way, you don't have to use the gun. You just have to be a felon caught in possession of the gun. So the word goes out, if you don't want to go to prison or go back to prison, you know, you better not have firearms. Now, it's interesting to me, the Wisconsin Police Chiefs Association, they've registered in favor of this message, um, a gun control group calling itself the Wisconsin Anti-Violence Effort Educational Fund, whatever that means, registers as neutral. The group says it supports keeping guns out of the hands of people with felonies. Well, isn't that nice? But doesn't support mandatory minimum sentences because they increase incarceration rates and aren't equitable. Yes, they will increase incarceration rates. What aren't equitable, what isn't equitable means doesn't mean anything to me because it doesn't matter who you are. You get caught with a gun. You go to prison for five years. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, some pieces of legislation are hard. Some are easy. This, to me, is an absolute no-brainer. Five years in prison if you get caught with a gun. There is a problem. The problem is, what about if you've got DAs like John Chisholm who decide they want to plea bargain this away? Okay, I'll drop this if you plead guilty to something else. That's an issue. But right now, the idea of a mandatory minimum penalty, five years in prison, I think is long overdue. 855-616-1620. We discuss. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. This is one of these classic examples of a really, really good idea. Now, the question's going to be whether somebody like Governor Tony Evers, whose instincts are, I don't want to hold people responsible, I don't want to lock people up, and I'm very, very afraid that somebody's going to come and, I don't know, say, well, you're locking up too many types of this type of person or that type of person. It'll be interesting to see whether or not Evers will have the guts to sign this and do the right thing. If you're just tuning in, 
Finally, you've got Republicans in the legislature which have introduced a bill which would provide a mandatory five-year prison term for felons who are caught in possession of a gun. Mandatory. You must go to jail. It cannot be suspended. This tracks, by the way, federal legislation that's been around forever. If you want to get serious about people who shouldn't have guns carrying guns, one of the first things you need to do is make sure there are consequences for that. And I think that that's a very, very reasonable situation. You have five years for having a weapon while a felon about time. The social justice crowd might complain as usual, um, not taking into account that doesn't matter um, whether you're white or black or Hispanic, you're all going to receive the same penalty. Well, absolutely. That's the bottom line. Jeff, about time. Mandatory penalty for felons carrying guns. All I can say is hallelujah. Yeah, I I think that's it. Jeff, you get two thumbs up and a like from me. That's it. Jeff, agreed. Hallelujah. Five years for felons with guns. Absolutely. Yeah, see this this is this is the absolute no brainer that is out there. Now I understand, as I said earlier, that part of the problem is that you have if you have a district attorney, a progressive district attorney like John Chisholm, who decides, well, I don't want this felon to have to go to prison for five years. So what I'm going to do is try to undercut the legislation and I'm not going to charge the case. Um, even though it's a felon in possession, I'm not going to charge it. Or alternatively, I will dismiss it in a plea bargain. And if you get a judge that goes along with this, you will defeat the purpose of the law. I, I concede that. But that then is a justification, in my opinion, for getting rid of the district attorney if they are consciously trying to defeat the purpose of the law by holding felons accountable for having firearms. This, to me, like I say, is an absolute no-brainer. And before anybody thinks this is incredibly reactionary or something, like I say, this is something that the federal government has been doing for years and years and years. If you are a felon, or actually if you use a firearm in commission of a crime, it's a mandatory five-year penalty, regardless of what the other underlying penalty is. So let's, whatever you think about trying to get guns off the street, Why don't we start with holding those people who shouldn't have guns in the first place accountable? Andre in Madison. Andre, you're on WTMJ. I agree with your position, but how do you define possession? If I'm at my friend's house or my dad's house and he's got a gun, am I theoretically in possession of that gun for sentencing purposes? Well, it it depends. I mean, if you're you're a felon, if you're a felon, I mean, you have to be a felon. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, Andre, thanks. I mean, thanks for the call. I mean, the, the way w- without going too deep into the weeds, you define possession like you already have. You have actual possession, which is you are in you have the gun on your person or it's next to you on the car seat or whatever. And then there's what's called constructive possession, which is your ability to control the firearm, which is why, for example, and and this, this isn't a new provision of law. This is the way the law works. I mean, if you're, for example, uh, you are a felon, you can't have guns in your house. You, You can't say, well, the gun belongs to my wife or the gun belongs to my kid. It's in your house. You have the ability to control it. So, yeah, I mean, if you're a felon, you can't be in possession and worry about guns. But let's let's face it. That's 
that's not what the underlying problem here is. We we know where this is going to come up. This isn't going to be, gee, there was a felon that goes over to have, you know, a, a cookout at some neighbor's house, and the neighbor happens to have a, a firearm in their uh, bedroom drawer, and that guy gets, the felon gets prosecuted when he's out in the yard. That's not how this comes about. This comes about when you've got the felon who's driving in the car, who runs from the cops, flees from the cops, and they catch him. And he shouldn't have had the gun in the first place and you know the only reason he's got that gun is because he or she is up to no good if you want to read more about this particular bill you can follow me on twitter it's at jeff wagner 620 i've got a link to the story i also think it's a shame for want of a better word that some of these self-proclaimed anti-violence groups aren't getting behind this and it demonstrates that the real agenda i think that some of these groups have isn't as anti-violence as they claim, but rather is more, okay, well, we're all about gun banning, but, you know, we, we don't want to hold people who shouldn't have guns accountable. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, very glad to have you with us now. On this previous conversation, one of our texters says, well, Jeff, it's a great idea, but it's never going to happen when you have a governor whose goal is to release prisoners. He won't put more people in prison. That may very well be the case, and, and clearly it's Tony Evers' goal to replace, re- release prisoners. That was one of the issues in the last uh, governor's race where he had his parole commission that was just willy-nilly trying to release as many possible prisoners as they could. Um, it could very well be, but that's fine. If, if Tony Evers wants to come out and say, I am going to veto legislation that would provide for mandatory minimum penalty for felons. First of all, I think it's entirely possible that you could have a couple Democrats who would actually switch over and would vote to override that veto. But secondly, if Tony Evers wants to define the remaining three-plus years of his term as being the governor who does not want to hold criminals who aren't allowed to legally have guns Hold him accountable. Fine. Let him define himself that way. And whenever he talks about gun violence, you will know that he is not serious. So pass the bill, put it on his desk, and let's see where it goes. WTMJ breaking news time is 1231 p.m. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. As long as we are talking about penalties and holding people accountable, Here's another one of my underlying frustrations. Another day, another police chase. Now, let, let's back up a step. What, what, what is one of the things that you could, if you turn on the t- radio news or you listen to the TV news or watch the TV news, you, one of the things that you hear about on an almost daily basis is people running from the police. You know, isn't this kind of the standard thing? Well, and, and nowadays, fleeing from cops is so prevalent that typically, unless there's a situation where the person who is fleeing from the cops hits and kills somebody or injures somebody, it it doesn't even make the news anymore. It has become that commonplace, which is a sad reflection on on how things uh, occur. But yet we we see all these stories about that the typical reaction nowadays is, all right, you're driving down the street, you run a red light, you go through a stop sign, the police try to pull you over. Well, instead of pulling over, you flee. It happens multiple times a day on the mean streets of Milwaukee. Here's just the the latest example I, I have, and Channel 12 had this. Okay, yesterday... 
About 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Milwaukee police responded to a shot spotter call at approximately 5 p.m. Police observed two vehicles driving recklessly and attempted to stop them. In one case, the driver refused to stop and, wait for it, a vehicle pursuit ensued. The pursuit ended on North 6th Street and West Clybourne. So, you know, we're we're talking, this is downtown. This is downtown Milwaukee at at 5 p.m. rush hour. Pursuit ended on North 6th Street, West Clybourne Avenue, when the suspect vehicle, wait for it, ran a red light and crashed into an uninvolved car. In other words, some poor guy just happens to be, I don't know, driving home, and he gets hit when somebody blows through a red light by fleeing the cops. Police then say the occupants of the vehicle that had been fleeing exited the vehicle and ran. Of course, that's the other thing, too. You know, you, you flee from the cops, and then after you trash the car and hit somebody, you don't want to stop and investigate this stuff. You just get out and you run, and you hope that you're not going to get caught. Well, in this case, all four of the people that were fleeing from the police, first driving through the red light, etc., high rate of speed, and then running on foot, um, they all got caught. One was a 16-year-old Milwaukee male, then there was a 17-year-old Milwaukee male, then there was an 18-year-old Milwaukee male, and an 18-year-old Beloit male, all arrested after a foot pursuit. The driver of the vehicle that got hit when the fleeing car ran the red light, a 46-year-old Milwaukee woman um, taken to a local hospital, serious but non-fatal injuries. So that's some of the good news about this. And then, of course, the story I'm looking at says, criminal charges will be referred to the district attorney's office in the upcoming days. Okay, here, here's the way it works. In Wisconsin, running from the cops, they call it eluding. That, that's a class I felony, carries up to three and a half years in prison. And then if you run from the cops and you hit somebody, it's a more serious penalty. And you run from the cops and you hit and kill somebody, it's an even more serious penalty. But the, the basic just act of fleeing, 3.5 years, three and a half years in prison. But as we were talking about with the gun situation, it's not a mandatory penalty. There's no requirement that a judge do anything other than, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sentence you to three and a half years in prison. Pause, sentence suspended, and then I'm going to put you on probation. Obviously, what we are doing with regard to trying to discourage people from fleeing from the police is not working. And just like with the felon in possession of the gun thing, I think you need to start saying mandatory minimum jail time for people who flee from the police. Because this is happening on a daily basis, multiple times a day, and it is but for the grace of God that almost all of these chases don't end with a bunch of these criminals, these idiots, these thugs, these punks, choose whatever word you want, blowing through red lights and hitting and killing innocent people who are just driving on the streets. If you are running from police, there is pretty much always a reason why you're doing it. The car is stolen. You've got a gun in the car. You're not allowed to have guns, whatever. But it doesn't matter. We've got to do something to stop this epidemic of people running from the police. 
And this isn't about midnight basketball. It's not about mid. It's not about more drivers' education. It's not about oh, we need more you know opportunities. It's about holding people accountable. And right now we're doing a lousy job of that. And maybe at the same time we impose mandatory minimum prison sentences for felons who get caught with guns. Maybe we should start saying mandatory minimum jail sentences. Maybe a year for your first time. I don't know. But the idea is if you hit the gas and try to run from the cops, there is going to be a certainty that you are not going to pass go, you're going to go jail to jail, you're going to go directly to jail, and you're going to stay there for a while. And yes, that might mean we need to build some more jails. I'm okay with that if it gets dangerous people off the street. When we come back, Joe Biden's student loan plan running into some trouble at the Supreme Court today. We'll discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. You know, this is it's interesting. In Chicago, this is this is election day and one of the, the things that everybody is watching is the there are nine candidates running for mayor, including the incumbent mayor Lori Lightfoot, who is considered by many to be the worst mayor in the United States. Now that's that is saying a lot. And I'm not prepared to say that I think she's the worst mayor in the United States. I think Lori Lightfoot is probably one of the five worst mayors in, in the country. But, you know, I, and I'm kind of comfortable with that. So she's running for, uh, again, in the primary. And it's going to be really interesting to see how all this plays out. Because in, in the race for mayor, if no single candidate receives more than 50% of the vote, the top two vote-getters will face off again in a runoff on April 4th, which interestingly is the same day as the Wisconsin um, elections are going to be. But it's going to be interesting to watch because there's a lot of smart people in town in Chicago who think that she's not even going to be one of the top two. Now, I, I don't know enough about Chicago politics to kind of make a prediction on that, but her She's been a disaster, and her political career is clearly on the line. And let me say this. I wouldn't be surprised if she gets bumped out. I'm not predicting it, but I wouldn't get surprised. All right, here's something that I will be surprised on. I will be surprised if Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan survives in the United States Supreme Court. It's being argued today, and there's two separate cases that are being heard. One was brought by a couple individuals. Another is brought by a series of states. And there's really two questions. First question is whether or not these people have what is called the standing to sue. Standing means you have to be affected by the, the action. And then secondly, the question is whether or not Joe Biden has the authority to do what he did. Now, the interesting backdrop of this is about a month before Joe Biden took office. So this would be like December of of 2020 after he'd won the election. You know, people asked him about, you know, forgiving student loan debt. And his comment was, well, I think it's pretty questionable whether the president can just unilaterally cancel debt. Nancy Pelosi, when she was the House Speaker in July of 2021, said, no, the president doesn't have the authority to just cancel debt. It would take an act of Congress, not an executive order, to cancel student loan debt. Well, 
What ended up happening, though, is in an effort to try to buy votes for young people, the Biden administration said, we've changed our mind. What the heck? We're going to just come in and we're going to cancel huge chunks of student debt. Now, to do this, the Biden administration invoked this 2003 Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students. They call it the HEROES Act. The law says that the education secretary can waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision related to federal student loan aid when necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. Now, the purpose of this is limited to relief. It's like if you had a draft. You've got somebody who's you know got student loan debt, and they get drafted. Um, or there's a time of national emergency, and they get called up to fight in the military. This That's what the intention of this is. The intention of this is to allow the government to say, okay, while you're serving your country, we're going to put the student loan debt on hold, right? The Biden administration is trying to say this gives them the authority to essentially permanently cancel $400 billion in student loan debt. I will tell you that this argument was not being well received by, it seems to me, a majority of the you know United States Supreme Court. And I will be very surprised if this doesn't kind of go down in, in flames. But the Biden administration is arguing, well, look, this is something that's necessary. This is something that's good. This is something that is positive to do. And I guess my comment on this is that I don't, you know, we can and we have debated whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing for the taxpayers to pick up people's student loan debt. And I think the majority of at least of you who listen to us, whenever we've talked about this before, I think the majority of people say, no, this isn't a good idea. But regardless of whether you think it's a good idea or not, here's the real challenge. This is not, we do not have kings in this country. And to me, if, if Congress wants to decide that we are going to forgive huge chunks of student loan debt, my response is, fine. Okay, that's something that Congress can do. But I don't believe a president under separation of power should have the authority to simply say, I'm going to just wave my magic wand and all of a sudden hundreds of millions of dollars of legitimate debt is going to disappear. Well, actually, it doesn't disappear. It gets passed over so that the rest of the taxpayers have to pick it up. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, for a lot of different reasons, I hope this student loan debt goes down in flames I think it will, and I think for people who've been able to avoid you know, paying student loan debt and accumulating interest over the course of the last couple of years, I, I think you better get ready for a reality check because I think the gravy train is going to wind down very, very soon. And I guess my response is it, it should. If Congress wants to pass a law, let, let's do it. But there's not the votes in Congress to do it. Biden can't act on his own. 855-616-1620, we discuss. Stick around. Jeff Wagner is right around the corner. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. And see, and here's what the Supreme Court is dealing with today. It's not whether you or any of the justices agree with the student loan forgiveness plan or not. Okay? It's whether or not a president 
can bypass Congress and just because he wants to do it or he thinks he can buy votes or it's politically appealing to certain groups of people that he needs to vote, he can just simply say $400 billion, well, okay, it's uh, we're, we're going to shift that and now taxpayers are going to have to pick up the tab. This is one of the most significant separation of powers cases um, that I think the Supreme Court has handled in a long time time it's not again this question isn't whether it's a good idea or a bad idea i think it's a bad idea but it's something that if it's going to be done it has to be done by congress nancy pelosi said it joe biden said it but because there were votes to be had well joe biden decided that he wasn't going to say believe or follow what he knows in his heart to be true 855-616-1620 tony in milwaukee tony you're on wtmj yes good afternoon jeff how are you Good. What do you think? Uh, You know, it's scuzzy enough that people are trying to get out of paying their own debts and foisting that debt onto other people. But what what is really scummy is using something called the HEROES Act to do it. A, A law that was passed to help people who had sacrificed for our country to to pass. Uh, right. A law that's just going to shift debt from one group. It should be the Sleazeball Act or, or the Scuzz Bucket Act. It should not be passed under the Heroes Act. That's yeah, Tony. Thanks. Right. Thanks for calling. I mean, look, I, th- that is the, the euphemism that, that's kind of funny about this whole thing, and that's that's where we always try to find things. Now, this th- this use of executive order has been something that's been going on. It, it really hit high gear during the Obama administration because they didn't want to have to deal with Congress. They couldn't get stuff through Congress. And then, look, Trump did the same sort of thing. You know, by the way, Trump was the one who, first of all, put a pause on the student loan payments. But that wasn't forgiveness. That was, we've got an emergency, and, and there is some latitude in the law. All right, uh, at the start of the pandemic, when all of a sudden all these businesses close down and people lose their gigs and things like that, well, okay, I, I can understand emergency provisions kicking in and saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to suspend payments during the course of this emergency. So you, you don't have to make the payments, and we're, we're even not going to allow interest to accrue. Okay, that that's fine. I understand that for a limited time, but that's a far cry from saying we now have something permanently and we're just going to magically make hundreds of billions of dollars of legitimate debt go away. And that is the distinction. Now, you can go broke trying to figure out, you know, what a court's going to do. And the Biden administration knows that they are on really, really shaky legal ground. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to say to the court, look, these people who are suing, the states that are suing, they're not hurt by this. They don't have the right to sue, or these individuals don't have standing to sue. That's the only way they can get through it. Now, I don't think the court's going to buy into that, especially when it comes to the states, because if they do, we've essentially said we've created a king in this country. Forget about Congress. It doesn't make any difference. As long as the king wants to do something, the king can do it. And I don't think that that's a good idea, whether the king is Republican or Democrat. So I think this gets shot down big time. 
bottom line is, if you've got student loan debts, I wouldn't be spending that money thinking that it's already going to be forgiven. A lot of stuff coming up. We start off the next hour, right after the top of the hour news, by talking about what is going on with the local newspaper. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Now, I understand that you've got the the Packers general manager holding a press conference. I understand you've got spring training baseball and all that. Uh, but let, let's not lose sight of some of the other stories that are out there, and that is uh, this Marquette team. Marquette now ranked sixth in the country, and you got to go back decades to find when they were ranked sixth in the country. Marquette plays. They've got two games left in the regular season. They're playing um, at Butler um, this evening, you know, and you can hear that on a sister station, 94.5 FM. But um, if Marquette beats Butler tonight, they they will win. Right now, they're guaranteed a share of the Big East title. If they win tonight, um, they're going to be uh, alone. They're going to. This guarantees they win the Big East, at least the regular season championship. And for a team that was predicted to finish ninth in the conference. Um, in the Big East, this, I mean, it, it's an amazing statement. And I don't think this Marquette team is getting anywhere near as much attention as it deserves. Then, of course, you've got the great story with the Bucks and the huge winning streak, and they play at Brooklyn. Brooklyn right now is a hot mess, not saying that they can't, you know, knock off the Bucks, but the Bucks play at Brooklyn tonight. I think tomorrow night uh, the Nets come to Milwaukee to play. So it's just the, the kind of the sky is the limit. And I will tell you, I've, I've watched a number of the Bucks games lately and the Marquette games. And I, I, I in the NCAA tournament, you don't want to be playing Marquette. They've got a weakness or two, but I don't think you want to be playing Marquette. And nobody wants to be playing the Milwaukee Bucks now with the incredible depth they have. Just watch that win over Phoenix on Sunday without Giannis. Man, I'm telling you, this really is a golden age of basketball around this area, looking at what the Bucks are doing, looking at what Marquette's doing, not to mention UWM and some of the other schools as well. Okay, I admit that I was stunned when I saw these numbers. This was first reported in the Business Journal, and now um, the website Urban Milwaukee has picked up on this. But the the demise of the local newspaper is just absolutely staggering. I mean, here here are some of of the numbers, and and the these are reports. And the newspaper industry and the companies are required by law to make circulation postings, and so um, it's required by the U.S. Postal Service in a what they call a statement of ownership, management, and circulations that they have to annually publish so here here are the numbers and it's absolutely staggering the journal sentinel has a combined print and digital sunday circulation of seventy five thousand sixty one, and that's as of october of 2022 to give you a perspective that's down from a hundred and fifteen thousand in October of 2021. In other words, they've lost nearly 30, in just a year, they've lost nearly 35% of their subscribers, 40,000 subscribers almost, they, they've lost. 
And to just give you a, a little bit of perspective on this, in 2012, 10 years ago, the Sunday circulation was about 300,000. It's now down to 75,000, and that includes print and it includes digital. The the daily print circulation is just equally stunning as well. The daily print circulation is, let me see, um, 48,000, you know, 48,000, which is down from a year earlier. It was 75,000. That's a loss of 27,000 subscribers, a decline of 36%. And again, to give you perspective, 10 years ago, 2012, the daily print circulation was 175,000. It's now down to um, 48,000. And that combines digital and print. The other thing that is really staggering about this is that the newspaper industry has been trying to encourage more and more people to, to go to digital. Like, for example, I, I, I have a subscription but my subscription is digital. I mean, I don't get a newspaper delivered and to to my house, and I, I don't pay very much for it at all. I, I just, you know, maybe it's thirty bucks for six months, something like that. But you pay almost nothing for this. And the idea is they want to try to get more people to go to digital because it costs a lot of money to print a newspaper and then physically deliver it to people's houses. There's a lot of costs that are going involving in this. But um, if you look at the statement, I am just stunned, at least according to Urban Milwaukee, about how few digital subscribers they have. Now, for a while... They were kind of hiding this because if you have a print subscription, you automatically get the digital subscription. And so the way they were reporting it, they didn't break out the digital subscribers versus the print subscribers who just got the digital thing that came with it. But unique digital subscribers, October of 2021, there were 7,537, not not 75,000. 7,537. By October of 2022, the number of unique electronic subscribers, that is, again, people who do what I do, don't get it delivered, but just pay for it online, was only 6,358. These these are staggeringly small numbers. And it's not, in fairness, it's it's not just the local newspaper that's going through this. It's it's lots and lots of other newspapers across the country that are just flat out, you know, getting slaughtered. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, there's there's a lot of reasons, you know, why this has happened, including, you know, all the different other information sources that are out there. The spread of the Internet, um, the fact that classified ads have essentially gone away for all intents and purposes, and that was a huge part of newspaper advertising. But it, it seems apparent that, first of all, fewer and fewer people are getting hard copies of the paper delivered to them. And candidly, th- those hard copies of the paper, by the time you get the stories, they're, they're, they're two or three days out of date. I mean, as somebody who has, what I do is I have the, the digital subscription, but you can also, on a daily basis, you can access the the 
you can get on the on your computer screen, you can get a, a copy of the, the the paper. You know what it, the print paper appears in, and I mean I see things in the print paper that you know two days before were online. You know the baseball scores. You know they, if you get a night baseball game, that's not going to be in the next day's morning paper. Um, the papers are now not even printed in this area, so they have to be transported. And the the news item is just so dated by the time you get them. I mean I I just. I don't understand, other than coupons, which you can get electronically, I don't understand why anybody is getting the physical copy of the paper with two-day-old news delivered, and they haven't been able to convince at least any significant number of people to transition over to the um, the digital thing. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I just don't see how this is sustainable with, with these numbers. I just flat out don't which makes me wonder seriously whether in the next how much longer stuff like this can go on and whether there will continue to be daily newspapers like the journal sentinel or the detroit free press or some of these other papers whether or not they can be sustainable frankly i just don't see it will there be a usa today yeah will there be a wall street journal and a new york times that have national circulations and and do have lots of digital subscribers absolutely but how do newspapers make it and the answer is with these numbers they don't 855-616-1620 we discuss don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. Just because the buzzer hits doesn't mean the game ends. Highlights. Here comes the big fella. Giannis throws down the exclamation. Reaction. Seems to me like we're constantly looking for a reason to be worried. And I'm not quite there yet. Your thoughts. He's unique. Um, he's done everything we've asked of him um, since the day he got here. Nobody knows the Bucks like Justin Garcia. Catch Bucks Talk after every game. Right here on the home of the Bucks, WTMJ. Hey, this is WTMJ's Jeff Wagner here to tell you about Built Right Furniture, Leather, and Mattresses. If you're looking for affordable, better quality furniture and mattresses, you've got to do what a couple of my family members did. They went to Built Right. When you get to the store, you're going to find a 45,000-square-foot showroom with thousands of furniture items in stock, plus 500 mattresses. This includes a huge selection of USA and Amish-made furniture, plus better quality imported furniture for any size home. Special and custom orders are much faster in 2023 as well. Also, check out their over 50 models of power lift recliners in stock, ready for quick pickup or delivery. And now's a great time to get to Built Right as their 13th annual Friends and Family Sale is on now. It only happens once a year. Now is the time to invest in new furniture and mattresses. Built Right voted best place to shop and winner of the home furnishings association's 2023 retailer of the year open monday through saturday 10 a.m to 6 p.m sunday well sunday they're closed to be with family when you get there be sure to tell them wtmj's jeff wagner sent you to built right 54th and Layton avenue in greenfield these numbers are absolutely staggering a decline of 35% in one year and 75% in 10 years for combined daily and Sunday print digital circulation. Um, a, hand, a few thousand 
who are digital only, I don't know how the paper survives. And and I, again, I, I don't want you to pick on the Journal Sentinel because th- these numbers, I, I think you could find, you could extrapolate them and find other newspapers doing it. But th- this business model just flat out doesn't work anymore. And I don't know how you can continue to, I don't understand how you can continue to, I don't pay employees to put stuff out when so few people are actually paying money for the product. Steve in Cedarburg. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Thank you. Yeah, I was a subscriber to the Journal Sentinel for nearly four years, uh, both papers before that, and, and it got to be where they simply could not print and deliver a daily paper to my doorstep. So I canceled the subscription, wanted to just start buying the Wednesday, Friday, Sunday paper at the convenience store, and, and today they can't print and deliver a paper to a convenience store on a daily basis. It's all because it's mm-hmm. printed down in Illinois now in Peoria. The Journal right. Sentinel will no longer exist within a couple of years. Well, I mean, I, I again, I look at the, I, I've got the digital subscription, so I can look at the daily print edition, and, and I see stories that appear digitally like two days ago. I mean, I can remember as a kid, not even as a kid, as an adult, I can remember, hey, you, you'd read the story about the baseball game before, you know, Al Gore invented the Internet. Now, I mean, it, it just it just doesn't happen. Maybe if it's an afternoon game, maybe it finds its way into the next day's paper. But everything is so dated. It's like, why, why would people be paying for for you know information that's 24, 36, 48 hours, 72 hours old? Absolutely. Yeah. Part no, of the thanks for calling. Newspapers I, too. Is the... I'm go- sorry. Go ahead. Oh, we lost Steve. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But well, I mean, there's. And, and look, and, and there's there's the politics of this as well. And a number of my, you know, texters are are pointing out to me, Jeff. Uh, they were the local paper was so proud about going woke, they drove a lot of people away. I only still get digital because I want to know thy enemy. Well, I mean, look, I, the, the, there there's no question about it that there was that that for example, if you listen to this program, the 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 Journal Sentinel didn't think you existed. You know, you were. It was one of those things where, well, you know, it's it's that talk radio crowd, and it's those conservatives and things like that, and and that that hurt them, uh, along with a, a lot of other stuff, including the rise of the internet, and like I was saying earlier, the demise of classified ads and things like that. But there, there's no question about the the notion that, you know, in this case. Uh, essentially talking down or ignoring a huge chunk of their audience certainly didn't help. Jeff, I think one of the reasons why there's been a decrease in newspapers is because we live in a very busy society where people don't have time to sit down at their kitchen table with a cup of coffee and read the newspaper. That sort of generation has passed. A- absolutely. There, there, there's no question about it. Um, I, I've told this before. I, I still get, I get, believe it or not, I get the New York Times delivered on weekends but only on weekends because that's the time that maybe I have a little bit of time and I like sitting down on a Sunday morning and having my cup of coffee and putting the dog in my lap and just kind of reading through a paper. Jeff, I have a digital-only subscription that got me two years of all Gannett papers with about a year remaining. I can't imagine they're making any money um, off of that. Jeff, this doesn't surprise me at all. The Journal Sentinel was so biased during the recent governor's race it was obscene. 
I'm done with them. Jeff, two things. When it went to $4.50 a copy for the Sunday paper and $2 for the weekly paper and the erratic delivery system, I quit buying it. Yeah, that. I mean, th- those are all those things as well. You get to a certain point where you kind of just start to price yourself out of the market. Uh, Susie in Port Washington, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, thanks. You hit upon my point exactly. Um, you go woke, you go broke. Um, there are so many people who are so fed up with the one-sided point of view from the Journal Sentinel that it, they don't even want to hear it anymore. And then on top of it, there's no um, future for the Journal Sentinel because anybody who wants to hear all the woke stuff can go to CNN or any yeah. of the other freaky little stations, you know. So that's it. Yeah. That's my point. No, thanks for calling. No, I pre- well, I, I think that that's clearly an issue, and you have you have a number of different websites that have turned out that that are hyper local, and and what they're doing is they're you know they they they're, they're actually they've got city hall reporters, and, and they're they're going around and they're actually covering city hall or they're covering county board meetings, all these things that that the Journal Sentinel used to do that now it. it doesn't do. I mean, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office a long time ago, oh, there back when there was a journal and a sentinel, and there was a point in time where there used to be a journal and a sentinel, um, what happened was you, you actually, they actually had a dedicated reporter, one covered, one from the journal, one from the sentinel, actually covered the federal building, and they came over on a daily basis, and they sat through court hearings, and they picked up press releases about indictments and things like that. There was actually that kind of coverage. Well, that's all gone nowadays. You know, there, there's no, almost no breaking of stories that goes on. I will tell you, as somebody who, like, looks for stories from time to time or for, on a constant basis, I mean, th- there's as much... You, you go to some of these other local websites or you go to the TV stations or the radio stations. That's where the news is getting broken. It, it is. That's where the daily news is getting broken, which is the, the heart and soul of, of newspapers. And I, I don't again, I don't wish people ill. I, I don't. But these numbers are absolutely staggering. And if you want a link to the story, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. I just the the decline and the drop is just staggering. More importantly, the fact that despite all these efforts to try to replace the print subscribers, they are losing with digital. If, if these numbers are correct, n- nobody, uh, almost nobody's going digital. That, that has been a complete and total failure to get people to use the exclusive digital stuff. And I just don't know what the future is going to be other than you, you cannot continue to lose subscribers on the top of losing the classified advertising, on top of losing a lot of the regular print advertising. You, you, you can't pay to keep the lights on when this is dropping. And as somebody who appreciates local journalism, I, I don't wish them ill. I, I don't. And I remember when we were all part of one big company and we shared a corporate identity and you'd go down to the, the Journal Sentinel building and it would be, you know, you'd have the huge newsroom and stuff and all those things. It's gone and it's not coming back. And the only question is, if they can't figure out a way to reverse this trend as demonstrated by these numbers, is is there going to be a local newspaper at least as we've known it delivered on a daily basis a year, two, three years from now. And I, I just, again, the numbers, I don't understand how they can continue doing this unless they can figure out a way to get a lot more people to sign up for the paper. And 
that they certainly haven't figured that out thus far. If you want to see the the story that breaks down some of the numbers, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. Back with more in just a minute. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So do we just live with it? Now, yesterday, it record, record rainfall. Right? Just, and it came down two inches of rain, um, breaking all sorts of records. And it overwhelmed the deep tunnel system that we have. And so they haven't said how much, but they, they call this an overflow. And so what they started doing is they started dumping untreated water into Lake Michigan and into some of, of the waterways. Now, let me kind of back up on the history of this before we get get to what I want to talk to you about. If you were out on a boat in Lake Michigan and you had one of those porta potties and you dumped that porta potty into Lake Michigan, the fines that you would appropriately be looking at from the Coast Guard or whatever, if you got caught, are, are just astronomical. And that's appropriate. You know, you, you shouldn't be dumping stuff into the, the waterways. But if we look back, and at some point in time over the next week or so, MMSD is going to announce how much untreated stuff they, they dumped into the, the water, um, it, it, it's going to be a staggering amount. Now, why did they do it? Well, they did it because they really had no choice. Um, the deep tunnel, which has been operating for 40-plus you know, years, and I think construction started way before that, the deep tunnel is giant. That's exactly what it is. It's a big holding tank. And what happens is water goes into that, and then it waits to be treated, Right. Well, the problem is when you get days like yesterday where you get epic rainfalls, the amount of water that goes into the deep tunnel fills up the deep tunnel. And the water treatment facilities can't process the water fast enough, and so the water has to go somewhere. So what the MMSD does is they've got to do something. The deep tunnel is filling up. Um, they can't get the water processed in a fast enough fashion, so their choice is you either dump it into the streams, lakes, and waterways, or it backs up into people's homes. And you can't allow the backups of sewer water and things like that, so you dump. Now, the deep tunnel has done a great job of reducing the number of times where they have to dump stuff into the lake. I think the, the average right now is there, there might be two or three overflows a year. When before they had a deep tunnel, it was a lot more than that. I mean, 70, 80, 90 times. So that this holding tank, to that extent, it, it works. It accomplishes its purpose generally. But there are still going to be these occasions where th- this happens. So why does the deep tunnel fill up? Well, I mean, you've got a number of problems. First of all, you get heavy rainfall. That, that and coupled with snow melt. So that's number one. Number two, you still have combined sewer systems in a good portion of Milwaukee and Shorewood. By combined sewer systems, what I mean is the sanitary sewers, the toilet water, the water from showers, etc. That which needs to be treated is mixed in with rainwater and which doesn't necessarily need to be treated but it all goes into the treatment facility. If you were to go ahead and completely separate those sewers, 
you would reduce the pressure because again the the stuff that comes down you know the the, the rainwater and things that doesn't have to be treated it doesn't hurt i guess that it's treated but it doesn't have to be treated what has to be treated is the stuff that's in people's toilets and bath water and things like that so you still have combined sewers in a good portion of Milwaukee and in Shorewood on top of that you also have what they call infiltration which is those sanitary sewer pipes in many cases are old and they have leaks so what happens is you get groundwater that doesn't need to be treated groundwater leaks in and leaches into the sanitary sewer pipes and it gets in and it mixes so water that doesn't need to be treated gets into the system and helps fill this up so I've never been critical of MMSD because the problem is they, they have they're operating with limitations the limitation is they've got the deep tunnel. And when the deep tunnel fills up, they have no choice but to do the dumping because if they don't do the dumping, then you've got all the stuff backing like up into people's basements that you, you like you can't have. But we continue to do this because you can never build a tunnel which is deep enough to handle the, the, these epic rainfalls that we have you know, a couple times a year. So you're, you're going to be looking at this moving forward unless we bite the bullet and say, okay, look, here, here's what we got to do. If we want to be serious about stopping this, we, we've got to fix these leaky sewer laterals. And we've got to take that next step, and we've got to, city of Milwaukee, you know, village of Shorewood, we've got to require you to spend the money to separate the combined sewers so the rainwater doesn't that doesn't need to be treated, you know, doesn't get mixed in with the stuff that does, thereby reducing the pressure on the deep tunnel. Now, I don't know if that's going to guarantee that in every rain event that you're not going to have dumping, but if you had less water that didn't need to be treated getting into the system, I guarantee you that the chances of dumping would go down dramatically, but it would be an expense. 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, is the expense, and it might be astronomical, of fixing the, these old sewer lines and finally doing what I think we should have done 40 or 50 years ago, biting the bullet and separating the combined sewers from the, sanita- the sanitary sewers from the storm sewers. Is Have we reached the point now where we just got to do that, or are we going to continue to live with dumping? Once, twice, three times, sometimes even more, a year when you get epic rain events. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, how much did the dumping bother you? Is this just something that we, we've got to live with because, well, we can't afford or don't have the political will or don't want to have a taxpayer revolt if we say, hey, you got to separate the sewers. 855-616-1620. How do we handle this? Back to discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. More Jeff Wagner right after this. Now, now, don't get me wrong. There's, for example, where you have the combined system, the sanitary sewers, the toilet stuff, and the, um, the, the rainwater. There, there's nothing really wrong with treating the, the rainwater, the stormwater, but it doesn't need, because, I mean, it runs off your roof, so theoretically it could pick up, you know, some debris and things like that. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but it doesn't need to be done. 
And the problem is where you have these combined sewer systems, what happens is it contributes, doesn't cause exclusively, it contributes the dumping by overwhelming the system when all of a sudden you have all this rainwater that's coming down, you know, pouring into and mixing into the the sanitary sewers, the stuff that does need to be treated, and and it just this is the way it is. And again, I don't blame MS, MSD. They're they're stuck with a system that isn't going to get better. But at the same time, then we can't complain about the fact that you're going to have untreated wastewater or partially treated wastewater that gets dumped into Lake Michigan. Jeff, a buddy of mine worked for the Milwaukee treatment plant for years and said both lines should have been replaced or separated back in the late 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Now it's a disaster. Well, the the deep, yes, the, the deep tunnel works as it was intended to work. The problem is it's limited. And it's never going to be able to deal with huge rain events like we had yesterday. And this is going to happen a couple times a year. So I guess to me, the the fundamental question is, are we going to be willing to live with this? And where are all the environmentalists? You know what? Where where are all these people that that get upset about the the ozone count or that get upset about the carbon footprint? You know, where are all these people when you know we look at what happened yesterday and there's all this partially treated or untreated wastewater that has to get dumped into the system? And again, I am not advocating not dumping. Don't get me wrong. That that's. But my question is, why are we putting up with this? Why? Aren't we at a point now where we say, hey, we have to do better and stop this stuff from happening in the first place? Um, Jeff, here in Wauwatosa, people put their sump hoses so they discharge onto the street. I'm pretty sure they should be discharging onto the lawns. Um, Jeff, the can't afford needs to be taken off the table. The state has enough excess funds to take care of the problem of polluting Lake Michigan, no matter which city is polluting. Wisconsin has the money to fix the problem. It should just be fixed. Of course, you give the money back to the people. You can get a lot of votes by doing that. Claude St. Francis says, Jeff, we need to separate the sewers. It should have been done years ago. Where are the environmentalists when we need to clean the Great Lake? Jeff, imagine if a private company was doing caught doing a small amount of the same thing. It would be on national news, and the president would condemn them, let alone the fines. But since it's a municipality, it's overlooked. Well, that that's why I did give the example, and I'm not encouraging it. But you know, you're out on a you're out on a boat on Lake Michigan, you know, and and you dump your little porta potty into the lake. It's the fine is going to be astronomical, and it should be, and and it should be. I guess. The, the kick the, the frustrating thing to me is we we know what the problems are and this isn't a knock on the deep tunnel we know what the problems are and we know that as long as you still have combined sewer systems and as long as you have old sewer laterals that are leaking and, and that's a problem of it with it too you know the groundwater gets into the sanitary sewers 
and so the groundwater becomes saturated, water pours in. As long as we have that situation going on, we're always going to have dumping. Now, I can't guarantee you if you fix it that you're never going to have any dumping, but I guarantee you that you're going to reduce it dramatically. Jeff, I once owned a house in Milwaukee where they originally wanted me to disconnect my gutters that ran into the sewer. Um, yeah. Shortly after that, I received another letter telling me that our neighborhood was off their list because the houses were too close. Yeah, th- there's right. There, there's no, in my opinion, at least, there's no reason why anybody's storm gutters that, you know, when the downspout and stuff, there's, there's no reason why anybody should still have that connected to the sanitary sewers. I mean, that's. That's an easy one. Now, I understand you got the issue with the housing too close and stuff, but that's something that, that I, quite frankly, I'm, I'm shocked that it's not mandatory um, to do. Zeke and Oak Creek says they should mandate houses to disconnect their downspouts. That will limit, alleviate at least some of the problem. I, I don't disagree with that at all, but you've got to be serious about this um, before. Jeff, I've worked in the wastewater sector for 25 years. The issue is not with the limitations of the treatment plant. It's operated within the DNR permit, um, but it's that you need to have the DNR issue a more restricted permit, and that will then cause these things to happen. Bottom line of all this is don't complain about stuff being dumped into the lake unless we're willing to ask our municipal government separate the sewers fix the laterals, and then, and only then, will dumping be reduced. I'm not going to hold my breath. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Now, I understand that you've got the the Packers general manager holding a press conference. I understand you've got spring training baseball and all that. Uh, but let, let's not lose sight of some of the other stories that are out there, and that is uh, this Marquette team. Marquette now ranked sixth in the country, and you've got to go back decades to find when they were ranked sixth in the country. Marquette plays. They've got two games left in the regular season. They're playing um, at Butler um, this evening, you know, and you can hear that on a sister station, 94.5 FM. But um, if Marquette beats Butler tonight, they they will win. Right now, they're guaranteed a share of the Big East title. If they win tonight, um, they're going to be. Uh, alone, they're going to. This guarantees they win the Big East, at least the regular season championship. And for a team that was predicted to finish ninth in the conference um, in the Big East, this—I mean—it's it, an amazing statement. And I don't think this Marquette team is getting anywhere near as much attention as it deserves. Then, of course, you got the great story with the Bucks and the huge winning streak, and they play at Brooklyn. Brooklyn right now is a hot mess. Not saying that they can't, you know, knock off the Bucks. But the Bucks play at Brooklyn tonight. I think tomorrow night uh, the Nets come to Milwaukee to play. So it's just the, the kind of the sky is the limit. And I will tell you, I've, I've watched a number of the Bucks games lately and the Marquette games. And I, I out in the NCAA tournament, you don't want to be playing Marquette. They've got a weakness or two, but I don't think you want to be playing Marquette. And nobody wants to be playing the Milwaukee Bucks now with the incredible depth they have. Just watch that win over Phoenix on Sunday without Giannis. 
man, I'm telling you, this really is a golden age of basketball around this area, looking at what the Bucks are doing, looking at what Marquette's doing, not to mention UWM and some of the other schools as well. Okay, I admit that I was stunned when I saw these numbers. This was first reported in the Business Journal, and now um, the website Urban Milwaukee has picked up on this. But the the demise of the local newspaper is just absolutely staggering. I mean, here here are some of of the numbers, and and the these are reports, and the newspaper industry and the companies are required by law to make circulation postings. And so um, it's required by the U.S. Postal Service in a, what they call a statement of ownership, management, and circulations that they have to annually publish. So here, here are the numbers, and it's absolutely staggering. The Journal Sentinel has a combined print and digital Sunday circulation of 75,061, and that's as of... October of 2022. To give you a perspective, that's down from 115,000 in October of 2021. In other words, they've lost nearly 30, in just a year, they've lost nearly 35% of their subscribers. 40,000 subscribers almost, they've lost. And to just give you a, a little bit of perspective on this, in 2012, 10 years ago, the Sunday circulation was about 300,000. It's now down to 75,000, and that includes print and it includes digital. The, the daily print circulation is just equally stunning as well. The daily print circulation is, let me see, um, 48,000, you know, 48,000, which is down from a year earlier. It was 75,000. That's a loss of 27,000 subscribers, a decline of 36%. And again, to give you perspective, 10 years ago, 2012, the daily print circulation was 175,000. It's now down to um, 48,000. And that combines digital and print. The other thing that is really staggering about this is that the newspaper industry has been trying to encourage more and more people to, to go to digital. Like, for example, I, I have a subscription but my subscription is digital. I mean, I don't get a newspaper delivered and to to my house, and I, I don't pay very much for it at all. I, I just, you know, maybe it's thirty bucks for six months, something like that. But you pay almost nothing for this. And the idea is they want to try to get more people to go to digital because it costs a lot of money to print a newspaper and then physically deliver it to people's houses. There's a lot of costs that are going involving in this. But um, if you look at the statement, I am just stunned, at least according to Urban Milwaukee, about how few digital subscribers they have. Now, for a while... They were kind of hiding this. 
because if you have a print subscription, you automatically get the digital subscription. And so the way they were reporting it, they didn't break out the digital subscribers versus the print subscribers who just got the digital thing that came with it. But unique digital subscribers, October of 2021, there were 7,537. Not not 75,000, 7,537. By October of 2022, the number of unique electronic subscribers, that is, again, people who do what I do, don't get it delivered, but just pay for it online, was only 6,358. These these are staggeringly small numbers, and it's not, in fairness, it's it's not just the local newspaper that's going through this. It's it's lots and lots of other newspapers across the country that are just flat out, you know, getting slaughtered. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, there's there's a lot of reasons you know, why this has happened, including, you know, all the different other information sources that are out there, the spread of the Internet, um, the fact that classified ads have essentially gone away for all intents and purposes, and that was a huge part of newspaper advertising. But it, it seems apparent that, first of all, fewer and fewer people are getting hard copies of the paper delivered to them, and candidly th- those hard copies of the paper by the time you get the stories they're, they're they're two or three days out of date i mean as somebody who has what i do is i, I have the, the digital subscription but you can also on a daily basis you can access the the you can get on the on your computer screen you can get a, a copy of the, the the paper you know what it the print paper appears and and i mean i see things in the print paper that, you know, two days before were online. You know, the baseball scores, you know, if you get a night baseball game, that's not going to be in the next day's morning paper. Um, The papers are now not even printed in this area, so they have to be transported. And the the news in them is just so dated by the time you get them. I mean, I, I just... I don't understand, other than coupons, which you can get electronically, I don't understand why anybody is getting the physical copy of the paper with two-day-old news delivered, and they haven't been able to convince at least any significant number of people to transition over to the um, the digital thing. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I just don't see how this is sustainable with, with these numbers. I just flat out don't which makes me wonder seriously whether in the next how much longer stuff like this could go on and whether there will continue to be daily newspapers like the journal sentinel or the detroit free press or some of these other papers whether or not they can be sustainable frankly i just don't see it will there be a usa today yeah will there be a wall street journal and a new york times that have national circulations and and do have lots of digital subscribers absolutely but how do newspapers make it and the answer is with these numbers they don't 855-616-1620 we discuss Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. Just because the buzzer hits doesn't mean the game ends. Highlights. Here comes the big fella. Giannis 
throws down the exclamation. Reaction. Seems to me like we're constantly looking for a reason to be worried. And I'm not quite there yet. Your thoughts. He's unique. Um, he's done everything we've asked of him um, since the day he got here. Nobody knows the Bucks like Justin Garcia. Catch Bucks Talk after every game. Right here on the home of the Bucks, WTMJ. Hey, this is WTMJ's Jeff Wagner here to tell you about Built Right Furniture, Leather, and Mattresses. If you're looking for affordable, better quality furniture and mattresses, you've got to do what a couple of my family members did. They went to Built Right. When you get to the store, you're going to find a 45,000 square foot showroom with thousands of furniture items in stock, plus 500 mattresses. This includes a huge selection of USA and Amish-made furniture, plus better quality imported furniture for any size home. Special and custom orders are much faster in 2023 as well. Also, check out their over 50 models of power lift recliners in stock, ready for quick pickup or delivery. And now's a great time to get the Built Right, as their 13th annual Friends and Family Sale is on now. It only happens once a year. Now is the time to invest in new furniture and mattresses. Built Right voted best place to shop and winner of the Home Furnishings Association's 2023 Retailer of the Year. Open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Sunday, well, Sunday, they're closed to be with family. When you get there, be sure to tell them WTMJ's Jeff Wagner sent you to Built Right 54th and Layton Avenue in Greenfield. These numbers are absolutely staggering. A decline of 35% in one year and 75% in 10 years for combined daily and Sunday print digital circulation. Um, a, hand, a few thousand who are digital only. I don't know how the paper survives. And, and I, again, I, I don't want you to pick on the Journal Sentinel because th- these numbers, I, I think you can find, you can extrapolate them and find other newspapers doing it. But th- this business model just flat out doesn't work anymore. And I don't know how you can continue to, I don't understand how you can continue to, I don't pay employees to put stuff out when so few people are actually paying money for the product. Steve in Cedarburg. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Thank you. Yeah, I was a subscriber to the Journal Sentinel for nearly 40 years, uh, both papers before that, and, and it got to be where they simply could not print and deliver a daily paper to my doorstep. So I canceled the subscription, wanted to just start buying the Wednesday, Friday, Sunday paper at the convenience store, and, and today they can't print and deliver a paper to a convenience store on a daily basis. It's all because it's mm-hmm. printed down in Illinois now in Peoria. The Journal right. Sentinel will no longer exist within a couple of years. Well, I mean, I, I again, I look at the, I, I've got the digital subscription, so I can look at the daily print edition, and, and I see stories that appear digitally like two days ago. I mean, I can remember as a kid, not even as a kid, as an adult, I can remember, hey, you, you'd read the story about the baseball game before, you know, Al Gore invented the Internet. Now, I mean, it, it just it just doesn't happen. Maybe if it's an afternoon game, maybe it finds its way into the next day's paper. But everything is so dated. It's like, why, why would people be paying for, for you know, information that's 24, 36, 48 hours, 72 hours old? Absolutely. Yeah. Part no, of thanks the problem with newspapers, I, too, is that... I'm go, sorry, go ahead. Oh, we lost Steve. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But, well, I mean, there's... And look, and there's there's the politics of this as well. And a number of my 
you know, texters are, are pointing out to me. Jeff, uh, they were the local paper was so proud about going woke, they drove a lot of people away. I only still get digital because I want to know thy enemy. Well, I mean, look, I, the, the, there, there's no question about it, that there was... That, that, for example, if you listen to this program, the, the, the Journal Sentinel didn't think you existed. You know, you were, it was one of those things where, well, you know, it's, it's that talk radio crowd and it's those conservatives and things like that. And, and that, that hurt them. Uh, along with a, a lot of other stuff, including the rise of the Internet and, like I was saying earlier, the demise of classified ads and things like that. But there, there's no question about the, the notion that, you know, in this case, uh, essentially talking down or ignoring a huge chunk of their audience certainly didn't help. Jeff, I think one of the reasons why there's been a decrease in newspapers is because we live in a very busy society where people don't have time to sit down at their kitchen table with a cup of coffee and read the newspaper. That sort of generation has passed. A- absolutely. There, there, there's no question about it. Um, I, I've told this before. I, I still get, I get, believe it or not, I get the New York Times delivered on weekends but only on weekends because that's the time that maybe I have a little bit of time and I like sitting down on a Sunday morning and having my cup of coffee and putting the dog in my lap and just kind of reading through a paper. Jeff, I have a digital-only subscription that got me two years of all Gannett papers with about a year remaining. I can't imagine they're making any money um, off of that. Jeff, this doesn't surprise me at all. The Journal Sentinel was so biased during the recent governor's race it was obscene. I'm done with them. Jeff, two things. When it went to $4.50 a copy for the Sunday paper and $2 for the weekly paper and the erratic delivery system, I quit buying it. Yeah, that. I mean, th- those are all those things as well. You get to a certain point where you kind of just start to price yourself out of the market. Uh, Susie in Port Washington, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, thanks. You hit upon my point exactly. Um, you go woke, you go broke. Um, there are so many people who are so fed up with the one-sided point of view from the Journal Sentinel that it, they don't even want to hear it anymore. And then on top of it, there's no um, future for the Journal Sentinel because anybody who wants to hear all the woke stuff can go to CNN or any yeah. of the other freaky little stations, you know. So that's it. Yeah. That's my point. No, thanks for calling. No, I pre- well, I, I think that that's clearly an issue, and you have you have a number of different websites that have turned out that that are hyper local, and and what they're doing is they're you know they they they're, they're actually they've got city hall reporters, and, and they're they're going around and they're actually covering city hall or they're covering county board meetings, all these things that that the Journal Sentinel used to do that now it. it doesn't do. I mean, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office a long time ago, there back when there was a journal and a sentinel, and there was a point in time where there used to be a journal and a sentinel. Um, what happened was you, you actually they actually had a dedicated reporter. One covered one from the journal, one from the Sentinel actually covered the federal building and they came over on a daily basis and they sat through court hearings and they picked up press releases about indictments and things like that. There was actually that kind of coverage. Well, that's all gone nowadays. You know, there, there's no almost no breaking of stories that goes on. I will tell you, as somebody who like looks for stories from time to time or for, on a constant basis, I mean, th- there's as much. 
you, you go to some of these other local websites or you go to the TV stations or the radio stations, that's where the news is getting broken. It is. That's where the daily news is getting broken, which is the the heart and soul of of newspapers. And I I don't again, I don't wish people ill. I I don't. But these numbers are absolutely staggering. And if you want a link to the story, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. I just the, the the decline and the drop is just staggering. More importantly, the fact that despite all these efforts to try to replace the print subscribers they are losing with digital if, if these numbers are correct n- nobody uh, almost nobody's going digital that that has been a complete and total failure to get people to use the exclusive digital stuff and i just don't know what the future is going to be other than you, you cannot continue to lose subscribers on the top of losing the classified advertising, on top of losing a lot of the regular print advertising, you, you, you can't pay to keep the lights on when this is dropping. And as somebody who appreciates local journalism, I, I don't wish them ill. I, I don't. And I remember when we were all part of one big company and we shared a corporate identity and you'd go down to the, the Journal Sentinel building and it would be, you know, you'd have the huge newsroom and stuff and all those things. It's gone and it's not coming back. And the only question is, if they can't figure out a way to reverse this trend as demonstrated by these numbers, is is there going to be a local newspaper, at least as we've known it, delivered on a daily basis a year, two, three years from now? And I, I just, again, the numbers, I don't understand how they can continue doing this unless they can figure out a way to get a lot more people to sign up for the paper. And that they certainly haven't figured that out thus far. If you want to see the the story that breaks down some of the numbers, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. Back with more in just a minute. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So do we just live with it? Now, yesterday, it record record rainfall. Right? Just it, and it came down two inches of rain. Um, breaking all sorts of records, and it overwhelmed the deep tunnel system that we have, and so they haven't said how much, but they they call this an overflow, and so what they started doing is they started dumping untreated water into Lake Michigan and into some of, of the waterways. Now, let me kind of back up on the history of this before we get get to what I want to talk to you about. If you... We're out on a boat in Lake Michigan, and you had one of those porta potties, and you dumped that porta potty into Lake Michigan. The fines that you would appropriately be looking at from the Coast Guard or whatever, if you got caught, are, are just astronomical, and that's appropriate. You know, you, you shouldn't be dumping stuff into the, the waterways. But if we look back, and at some point in time over the next week or so, MMSD is going to announce how much untreated stuff they they dumped into the, the water. Um, it, it, it's going to be a staggering amount. Now, why did they do it? Well, they did it because they really had no choice. Um, the deep tunnel, which has been operating for 40-plus you know, years, and I think construction started way before that, the deep tunnel is giant. That's exactly what it is. It's a big holding tank. And what happens is water goes into that, and then it waits to be treated, Right. Well, the problem is when you get days like yesterday where you get epic rainfalls, the amount of water that goes into the deep tunnel fills up the deep tunnel. 
and the water treatment facilities can't process the water fast enough, and so the water has to go somewhere. So what the MMSD does is they've got to do something. The deep tunnel is filling up. Um, They can't get the water processed in a fast enough fashion. So their choice is you either dump it into the streams, lakes, waterways, or it backs up into people's homes. And you can't allow the backups of sewer water and things like that, so you dump. Now, the deep tunnel has done a great job of reducing the number of times where they have to dump stuff into the lake. I think the the average right now is there there might be two or three overflows a year. When before they had a deep tunnel, it was a lot more than that. I mean, 70, 80, 90 times. So that this holding tank, to that extent, it it works. It accomplishes its purpose generally. But there are still going to be these occasions where th- this happens. So why does the deep tunnel fill up? Well, I mean, you've got a number of problems. First of all, you get heavy rainfall. That, that and coupled with snow melt. So that's number one. Number two, you still have combined sewer systems in a good portion of Milwaukee and Shorewood. By combined sewer systems, what I mean is the sanitary sewers, the toilet water, the water from showers, etc. That which needs to be treated is mixed in with rainwater and which doesn't necessarily need to be treated but it all goes into the treatment facility. If you were to go ahead and completely separate those sewers, you would reduce the pressure because, again, the, the stuff that comes down, you know, the, the, the rainwater and things, that doesn't have to be treated. It doesn't hurt, I guess, that it's treated, but it doesn't have to be treated. What has to be treated is the stuff that's in people's toilets and bath water and things like that. So you still have combined sewers in a good portion of Milwaukee and in Shorewood. On top of that, you also have what they call infiltration, which is those sanitary sewer pipes in many cases are old and they have leaks. So what happens is you get groundwater that doesn't need to be treated. Groundwater leaks in and leaches into the sanitary sewer pipes and it gets in and it mixes. So water that doesn't need to be treated gets into the system and helps fill this up. So I've never been critical of MMSD because... The problem is they, they have, they're operating with limitations. The limitation is they've got the deep tunnel. And when the deep tunnel fills up, they have no choice but to do the dumping because if they don't do the dumping, then you've got all the stuff backing like up into people's basements that you, you, like you can't have. But we continue to do this because you can never build a tunnel which is deep enough to handle the, the, these epic rainfalls that we have, you know, a couple times a year. So you're, you're going to be looking at this moving forward unless we bite the bullet and say, okay, look, here, here's what we got to do. If we want to be serious about stopping this, we, we've got to fix these leaky sewer laterals. And we've got to take that next step, and we've got to, City of Milwaukee, you know, Village of Shorewood, we've got to require you to spend the money to separate the combined sewers so the rainwater doesn't, that doesn't need to be treated, you know, doesn't get mixed in with the stuff that does, thereby reducing the pressure on the deep tunnel. Now, I don't know if that's going to guarantee that in every rain event that you're not going to have dumping. But if you had less water that didn't need to be treated, 
getting into the system, I guarantee you that the chances of dumping would go down dramatically. But it would be an expense. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, is the expense, and it might be astronomical, of fixing these old sewer lines and finally doing what I think we should have done 40 or 50 years ago, biting the bullet and separating the combined sewers from the the sanitary sewers from the storm sewers, is have we reached the point now where we just got to do that, or are we going to continue to live with dumping once, twice, three times, sometimes even more, a year when you get epic rain events? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, how much did the dumping bother you? Is this just something that we, we've got to live with because, well, we can't afford or don't have the political will or don't want to have a taxpayer revolt if we say, hey, you got to separate the sewers? 855-616-1620. How do we handle this? Back to discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. More Jeff Wagner right after this. Now, now don't get me wrong. There's... For example, where you have the combined system, the sanitary sewers, the toilet stuff, and the um, the, the rainwater, there, there's nothing really wrong with treating the, the rainwater, the stormwater, but it doesn't need, because, I mean, it runs off your roof, so theoretically it could pick up, you know, some debris and things like that. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but it doesn't need to be done. And the problem is where you have these combined sewer systems, what happens is it contributes, doesn't cause exclusively, it contributes to the dumping by overwhelming the system when all of a sudden you have all this rainwater that's coming down, you know, pouring into and mixing into the the sanitary sewers, the stuff that does need to be treated, and and it just this is the way it is. And again, I don't blame MS, MSD. They're they're stuck with a system that isn't going to get better. But at the same time, then we can't complain about the fact that you're going to have untreated wastewater or partially treated wastewater that gets dumped into Lake Michigan. Jeff, a buddy of mine worked for the Milwaukee Treatment Plant for years and said both lines should have been replaced or separated back in the late 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Now it's a disaster. Well, the the deep, yes, the, the deep tunnel works as it was intended to work. The problem is it's limited. And it's never going to be able to deal with huge rain events like we had yesterday. And this is going to happen a couple times a year. So I guess to me, the the fundamental question is, are we going to be willing to live with this? And where are all the environmentalists? You know what? Where where are all these people that that get upset about the the ozone count or that get upset about the carbon footprint? You know, where are all these people when you know we look at what happened yesterday and there's all this partially treated or untreated wastewater that has to get dumped into the system? And again, I am not advocating not dumping. Don't get me wrong. That that's. But my question is, why are we putting up with this? Why? Aren't we at a point now where we say, hey, we have to do better and stop this stuff from happening in the first place? Um, Jeff, here in Wauwatosa, people put their sump hoses so they discharge onto the street. I'm pretty sure they should be discharging onto the lawns. Um, Jeff, the 
can't afford needs to be taken off the table. The state has enough excess funds to take care of the problem of polluting Lake Michigan, no matter which city is polluting. Wisconsin has the money to fix the problem. It should just be fixed. Of course, you give the money back to the people. You can get a lot of votes by doing that. Claude St. Francis says, Jeff, we need to separate the sewers. It should have been done years ago. Where are the environmentalists when we need to clean the Great Lake? Jeff, imagine if a private company was doing caught doing a small amount of the same thing. It would be on national news, and the president would condemn them, let alone the fines. But since it's a municipality, it's overlooked. Well, that that's why I did give the example, and I'm not encouraging it. But you know, you're out on a you're out on a boat on Lake Michigan, you know, and and you dump your little porta potty into the lake. It's the fine is going to be astronomical, and it should be, and and it should be. I guess. The, the kick the, the frustrating thing to me is we we know what the problems are and this isn't a knock on the deep tunnel we know what the problems are and we know that as long as you still have combined sewer systems and as long as you have old sewer laterals that are leaking and, and that's a problem of it with it too you know the groundwater gets into the sanitary sewers and so the groundwater becomes saturated water pours in as long as we have that situation going on we're always going to have dumping now i can't guarantee you if you fix it that you're never going to have any dumping but i guarantee you that you're going to reduce it dramatically jeff i once owned a house in milwaukee where they originally wanted me to disconnect my gutters that ran into the sewer um yeah. Shortly after that, I received another letter telling me that our neighborhood was off their list because the houses were too close. Yeah, there's right. There, there's no, in my opinion, at least, there's no reason why anybody's storm gutters that, you know, when the downspout and stuff, there's, there's no reason why anybody should still have that connected to the sanitary sewers. I mean, that's. That's an easy one. Now, I understand you got the issue with the housing too close and stuff, but that's something that, that I, quite frankly, I'm, I'm shocked that it's not mandatory um, to do. Zeke and Oak Creek says they should mandate houses to disconnect their downspouts. That will eliminate, alleviate at least some of the problem. I, I don't disagree with that at all, but you've got to be serious about this um, before. Jeff, I've worked in the wastewater sector for 25 years. The issue is not with the limitations of the treatment plant. It's operated within the DNR permit, um, but it's that you need to have the DNR issue a more restricted permit, and that will then cause these things to happen. Bottom line of all this is don't complain about stuff being dumped into the lake unless we're willing to ask our municipal government separate the sewers fix the laterals, and then, and only then, will dumping be reduced. I'm not going to hold my breath. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. You know, I... I I, I continue to follow as an observer this whole conversation about Aaron Rodgers and the general manager is saying, well, you know, we haven't heard from him and I haven't talked to him in person since the season ended and we're kind of waiting. I, I guess my, my, my takeaway on this is that this, the, the contract that the Packers gave Aaron Rodgers a year ago might be from the perspective of a sports franchise 
one of the worst contracts in sports history in the fact that, and I'm not just talking about like they, they spent a bunch of money and the players stopped performing, but they gave up any leverage that they could possibly have. I mean, I, I'm listening to this and I'm trying to think, can you imagine any other situation where the employee essentially gets to hold his employer, in this case, you know, hostage in, in this type of fashion? Well, I don't know if I'm going to play or not. I don't know if I want to play for you. And I don't know if I want to be traded. And I'm not sure who I want to be traded to. And because of the nature of the deal, the Packers have no choice other than to just kind of suck it up because they've committed so much guaranteed money that they really just have to sit back and, and, and just wait for Aaron Rodgers to decide, you know, what he's going to do. Clearly, the time to have moved on was, was last year when they, they might have had a bunch of different options. But uh, talk about a misjudgment. They thought last year was going to be the year that they could make the run to the Super Bowl, and they thought Aaron Rodgers would come back and would be all bought in. And, you know, none of that turned out to be the case. And regardless of whether Aaron Rodgers can still perform at at, at a MVP level or not at the age of 39, soon to be 40, that that's a different question. It's just mind-boggling to me that the Packers organization allowed itself to be just held hostage in this fashion by making just what is just a stunningly bad deal, maybe one of the worst deals in in history as far as tying a franchise up, not just in terms of long-term money, but in terms of allowing one player to essentially dictate and hold you hostage in all your moves. I I don't know how it's going to turn out, and I don't have any special insight other than the fact that I can't imagine Aaron Rodgers, who's never left a dime on the table during his entire career, I can't imagine him just saying, I'm going to retire and walk away from a guaranteed $58 million. That That's that's not going to happen. So I'm convinced that Aaron Rodgers is going to be on a team somewhere, whether it's the Packers or somebody else. But, boy, whoever thought that deal was a good deal really needs to have their head examined. And maybe that's a lesson for other franchises that, yeah, don't necessarily want to make that commitment. Okay, I want to talk politics for a minute. I, I saw a... Uh, it was, I think it was on the ABC Sunday show, and I don't watch those a lot, but my wife happened to have it on in the background, and I was kind of listening to the, the conversation. A lot of the discussion that we have about politics in the upcoming presidential election is, is Joe Biden's age, and, and we've talked about that before. The, and I mean, look, I, I'm on record and it's not just Joe Biden. I, I mean, I I think Donald Trump is too run, old to to run and, and serve at 78. In Biden's case, he's 80 now. And, and let us let us be honest about this. Biden is showing his age. Um, I, I think, you know, he, he's been around for decades. Matter of fact, that the New York Times has a guest essay about this and it says that, OK, his his current condition uh, compares unfavorably with memories of his former self. People remember him when he didn't whisper or mumble, when his gait was not that of someone concerned about tripping or falling. He's showing his age. OK, there, there's no question about that. And. That's just a a reality, and you see that with other politicians who hang on for well past their sell-by date as well. So Joe Biden runs for re-election, and let us say that he were to be re-elected at the age of 82. 
And this is one of the, these brutal things. And actually, the New York Times writes this story. President Biden's succession problem. And this is what they were talking about in this ABC report. The hope would be that if you were to reelect Joe Biden at the age of 82, the hope would be that he would be able to serve out his full term at 86 and last till 86. But, but here's the reality. Just like when Franklin Roosevelt was reelected to his fourth term, I, I think many, 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 many people in the know who understood how bad his health was recognized that there was no way he was going to make it to the end of that fourth term. And, and this, the, the press didn't focus on this, so you, got, you ended up getting Harry Truman. But the, just the, the simple reality is, when somebody hits the age of 82, the chances of them making 86 and, and finishing another four years are a lot less than somebody who's elected at the age of 58. That's just the simple reality. That's the math, and that's the process of aging. So that means, I believe, that if Joe Biden runs again, one of the issues that is going to come up in the election, whether it's direct or otherwise, is going to be who is the vice president? Because you have to figure that there is at least a decent chance that somebody at the age of 82 doesn't make it till the age of 86. And I don't mean to be harsh or cruel. That is just kind of the reality that's out there. And that's a question that's different than you have if you're electing somebody who's in their 50s and healthy and vibrant and young, understanding that anything can happen. But it's more important, I would argue, who the vice presidential candidate is when you've got a president who's running for election who, like Biden, would be 82 when he took oh when he took over. And I would say the same thing. I don't believe Trump is going to be the nominee, but I'd say the same thing about Trump at the age of 78. The vice president becomes a more important consideration because of the age of the president. So let's tee this up. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Does Biden have a succession problem? And by that I mean, all right, is a vote for Joe Biden as president in 2024, is that essentially also a vote for Vice President Kamala Harris? And should she be dumped um, as as the vice president? Because, you know, will she be a political liability? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. So very glad to have you with us. This, this Look, this is something that I, I think needs to be discussed. If Joe Biden runs again, 82 year, he would be 82 years old. You just have to look at the mortality tables and the... the and you have to at least understand that it is an issue as to whether he makes it to 86. That, that's just the reality. And, and yes, I understand that the vice president is a heartbeat away, and I understand that anything can happen. But my point is, when somebody hits the age of 82, 
you know, it's a different consideration than, you know, a president who's, you know, in their 40s or 50s, whether it's Bill Clinton or George Bush or Barack Obama. I mean, younger people. And yes, and I understand, again, that things can happen to people in their 40s and 50s and 60s. But when you get to 82, the chances of that are increasing. So the issue becomes, what do you do with Kamala Harris? 855-616-1620. You know, and if she is on the ticket... Will that hurt Biden? And my answer is, yeah, it will, because you can't, I don't think, vote for Biden in 2024 without in the back of your mind thinking this is a vote for Kamala Harris, because you have to at least be open to the possibility there's a good chance that Biden might not finish that second term for a variety of reasons. 855 616 one six twenty. Jeff, it's not only mortality, but it's also cognitive abilities. Yeah, I think there, there's that's the, the case as well. And that's the point the New York Times article is making where they're saying, look, you know, Biden's been around for a long time and you can remember him. You, you look when he was more vigorous and it's just kind of the reality. And for people who get upset with that, look, I think most people who are in their 80s would tell you that they're not as cognitively cognitively with it as they were when they were in their 40s. And that's just kind of the reality. Jeff, I'd like to see Biden pick a different running mate who inspires more confidence with the public. I think she hasn't done a good job of protecting her abilities, and that happens with a lot of vice presidents. They have to walk a fine line between being subservient and projecting their own views. Jeff, if Biden dumps Kamala, he will lose a portion of the black vote and most of the undecided to vote black voters. He will definitely not inspire anybody black to vote for him with that kind of move. She was a political asset the first time around. Well, I I don't I don't know. You could replace her with somebody else that might also have an appeal to that segment of the voters. I I think she's a net liability. I I just do. And I think that there's a lot of people that are going to look at this who might have given Joe Biden the benefit of the doubt, especially over Donald Trump. But the whole idea of this means we're voting for Kamala Harris. No, I don't think so. 855-616-1620. Jeff, the thought of Kamala Harris being president is even more frightening than Joe Biden being reelected. Time for a change and youth in the White House is the future. Now, it's also interesting to me because when we talk about youth in the White House, it's not like we're talking about 35 year olds. We're talking about, I don't know, people who are in their 40s or 50s or maybe even in their 60s. Um, Jeff, I don't think we even have a vice president now. You never hear anything from Harris. It's like she's a ghost. Well, you know, she she's around, but her performances have been non-inspiring. But I guess the question is, you know, uh, do the American people trust her with the gig? And I think it's more important that she'd have to establish that she's up to it when you're you're running um, with a likelihood, or at least a strong possibility, that you might be the president. Jeff, you nailed it. We have we will have our first female president if Biden wins and Kamala Harris runs as the vice president. I don't mind a female in the presidency, but I don't want it to be 
her. Jeff, I think this is a ploy of the Democratic Party to get Harris as the president. She's completely unelectable in this country, but she could sneak in if Joe Biden is too unhealthy to continue his job. Then they would claim that they were the first party to elect a black woman as president. Well, I'm more concerned about the um, issue of um, I'm more concerned about the, the whole issue issue of uh you know competence and things you know like that and you know i think you know somebody john Burling says could obama be his running mate well not barack obama but michelle obama could be the running mate wouldn't that be an interesting sort of situation i i bring this up because we're, we're uncomfortable in this country talking about age but this is going to be an issue and the truth is if Joe Biden runs and he asks Kamala Harris to run with him, that becomes, I think, normally I don't think people vote for the vice president. I, I've always, I, I've, I've always, you know, when you, when you hear all this discussion at conventions and who's going to be the vice presidential candidate and what does this bring to the table, I, I've, I've almost always believed that people don't vote. People, at the end of the day, they vote for whoever's at the top of the ticket. They, they don't vote for who the vice president is. The exception to that of course, is a situation where there's at least a chance that the president isn't going to be able to finish out his term. And when you get elected, if you were to get elected at the age of 82, that's, I think, one of those chances. Time will tell. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff Biden will win regardless of running mate as long as the GOP nominee is Trump. Pretty much any other GOP nominee will beat Biden. Democrat running mate doesn't matter. Well, I, I agree that, that Trump loses. Um, I agree that pretty much any other GOP nominee nominee beats him. I my point, I guess, is is that if Biden runs for your election and Kamala Harris is the running mate. I think that hurts him unless he is in a position where he or she can convince people that, you know, she would be an asset and is ready to take over as president. And I don't see any of that happening thus far. Um, let's see, Jeff, I'm a liberal. None of my friends want Harris as president. I also think Biden needs to retire. Well, I, I don't I don't know if that's going to be the case or not. I just, I just don't. I've said this before. I just don't understand when you hit. um I don't know, when you've accomplished all the stuff that Biden's accomplished and you're 80 years old and presumably you have all the money you need, why don't you? It, it, I understand that this power must be just so intoxicating that you just can't walk away from this. And I would say the same thing about Trump, but I'd say the same thing about so many of the other politicians that have just stayed way past their shelf, shelf life. Jeff, I think Sarah Palin hurt McCain's campaign in 2008. Uh, I, I, I guess I don't think she helped it. I guess I would say that I I don't think McCain was going to be able to, you know, beat Obama in 2008 regardless, but I don't think, I don't think that she, she helped it. How much she heard it. I, I don't know. Hey, um, before we throw it over to the news, I, I want to double back on something we talked about briefly yesterday that this whole controversy involving Scott Adams. He's the cartoonist. He writes the, the Dilbert comic strips, you know, and he um, 
Uh, you, you want to talk about, you know, canceling yourself. He goes on this podcast and he says a bunch of stuff which has been described, I think appropriately so, as being racist. And what ended up happening is once that got out, you had all the, the syndicated, the syndicators and distributors and newspapers that just decided to, to drop the, the strip, uh, script. It's not surprising to me, I, I guess, that, that this happened. What is surprising to me is that it happened so fast. Now, this story broke over the weekend, and by Monday, essentially every newspaper that was running the Dilbert Strip comic strip had canceled them. Now, at the height of the at the height of this, he had like two thousand newspapers, something crazy like that. It wasn't as many at the end, but still, this was an incredibly popular comic strip that, in the space of just a couple days, boom, um, th- it was. It was all gone. And now I'm looking at a story. I think it's in the Washington Post. Um, essentially, it is now at a point where if you want to see new Dilbert strips, new comics, what you're going to have to do is if they're available only um, on his subscription service. So um, th- there's there's not going to be any more, hey, you just go to pick up the local newspaper or go to one of those aggregators that has a bunch of comic strips. The only way you're going to be able to see Dilbert, I mean, starting like today, is to pay extra and go to this subscription service. And it, it's it's not that it happened, but once again, it's ha- that it happened so incredibly quickly to just go from like zero to go from like a hundred to nothing that fast. And I guess it's, it's a lesson to everybody out there. I don't think it bothers Scott Adams. I think he's always kind of marched to his own drummer, but it is an object lesson to everybody that fame is fleeting and, you know, be, be prepared because when things go bad, they can go bad in a hurry. Okay. WTMJ breaking news time is 2.31 p.m. From the WTMJ Breaking News Center, is it Wyatt Bormore Pooley? Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, Steely Dan, My Old School, one of my very favorite tunes. Something else that I enjoy and that a lot of other people enjoy. When I, I, I've told this story before. When I was, um, after I got out of college, before I went to law school, I worked for an, an insurance company. It was Time Insurance Company. It used to be on Fifth and Wells. And before, it suddenly became like assurance insurance or something like that. But, you know, I, I worked there till I, I went to law school at Marquette that, that following September. And one of the things that they did during the summer is they had summer hours, and it was it was really cool because what they 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 figured that Friday afternoons during the summer, and this was a it was a big insurance company that dealt primarily with insurance agents and things like that. At least the area that I worked in did, and so they figured you know Friday afternoons during the summer, it's not like you're getting too many calls from the agents or things like that. So what they did is they created a four and a half day work week. They didn't shorten the work week, but what they did is they had people come in like a half hour early on Monday through Thursday, and maybe they they cut lunch by 15 minutes, and maybe you stayed a little bit longer. I forget how they did it, but they made up during those first four hours, uh, first four days, they they made up that, that half a day. So noon on Fridays, 
you, you got off. And so it was like it was like having a three day weekend because you, know, you get off on Friday at noon and you could I mean, I, there was a group of guys. We played golf on Friday afternoons and stuff. It was really kind of like having this extra day. I loved that four and a half day work week, but it was something that worked because of the unique you know, nature of, of their business and the fact that, you know, Friday afternoons during the summer were kind of dead. They, they didn't they didn't make it work year round because, you know, Friday afternoons in November or December or, you know, in February or March, it was a different sort of dynamic and it didn't work. But it was something they did exclusively for the, the summer. One of the things that has happened after COVID with more and more people working remotely during the um, during the pandemic and things like that is American workplaces have decided to take a step back and say, okay, just because we've always done something one way, does that mean that we always have to do something the same way? Also, a lot of employees have, of course, started to feel particularly empowered. Oh, you know, we we worked at home when we had to during the pandemic. Now we don't want to have to come back into the office. And we've talked about aspects of this before. More and more employers are saying, well, you know, we, we want you back in the office because we think you're more productive. We want you back in the office because we think it's important for team building, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why workplaces that were largely okay you can work remotely are not exclusively but now they're they're saying okay you got to be back either full-time or it's got to be some sort of hybrid schedule where maybe you're here in the office four days a week but you get to work remotely for a day so they're, they're grappling with this one of the things that I think is really interesting and there's a big story in the Washington Post about this is more and more companies are looking not at the remote work aspect, but they're looking at a four-day work week. The idea that now some companies are saying, okay, maybe what we can do is a four-day work week, four eight-hour days, 32 uh, hours a week. Others are saying, well, maybe what we can do is four 10-hour days, you know, Monday through Thursday or Tuesday through Friday or whatever, working 10-hour days to get to your 40 hours. But either way, the thing would be you'd have four days that you'd work, and then you'd have three days off. Now, they've tried some experiments with this, and there were a number of studies that they did. um, 60 different companies in Britain did it last year. Nearly 3,000 workers, they shifted to a four-day, 32-hour work week, and apparently... I mean, the, the claim is productivity, profits, worker attitudes, morale, absenteeism, and turnover all, you know, moved in positive areas because people like this. Our number, 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, let, let's tee this up. Would a four-day work week work in the United States on any sort of large scale and would you like something like that? 32 hours. Now, if you're working 32 hours, correspondingly, it would seem to me there'd have to be a cut in pay. But what about like four 10-hour days? Would that work? And obviously, there's some jobs that it's not going to be able to work for. But for a lot of people, you know, you work in an office job. Do you think you'd be as productive? Would you like that four 10-hour days instead of five 8-hour days? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 
I actually think that there might even be more appeal for this than, than remote work. We're talking about this, this trend, four-day work weeks, whether it's four eight-hour days, which is 32 hours, or more likely, you know, four 10-hour days. No, it doesn't work in all industries. I, I, I get that. I understand that. But in industries where it might work, you know, is this something that would be appealing? Jeff, about 18 years ago, I worked four 10-hour days and had Fridays off. I was so productive at work in my home life, I think subconsciously I felt like the employer cared. It was on, I was on a 24-7 help desk uh, telephone line. Um, Jeff, it works out fine for people who are working the four tens. I'm in the business of farming. Um, well, yeah. And if you need a service from a business like that, you're out of luck, basically three or four days. Well, well that's why you, you need to, if you're the business that's going to do it, you need to structure it so that it, it's not everybody. I'm not saying you close necessarily Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It might be that, that some people work Sunday through, uh, again, Sunday through Wednesday, and other people work Monday through Thursday, and some work, you know, whatever, you know, so you have to have the coverage of this. Um, Jeff, I think a four-day work week would be great. I worked in a school district. In the summer, we were able to have four 10-hour days rotated, having Mondays and Fridays off. It was great. All the work got done, and we ended up having a three-day weekend. Let's talk to Chris in Elkhorn. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Uh, hi Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. I used to, I used to own a factory uh, years back, and when we first started the factory, we started with four ten-hour uh, days, and the guys loved it. They just loved it. And then, as business picked up, we had to go to five-day weeks, and we lost some people. They just didn't understand that uh, that's how it is. Um, yeah. So it was a little bit different, you know, than what you're talking about. To a, a little bit different, however. You know, you're right. I mean, I was just talking to my wife just this last week about that. She's a nurse, and they were talking about going going to four day, you know, four day weeks. Mm-hmm. And I told her, and she was complaining about it. And I said, Lori, jeez, <laughs> yeah, think about that. You go, oh my gosh, you know, I would give my left arm for that. Yeah, anyway, no, thanks. To, no, thanks to call Chris. No, no, I, 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 I understand it, and and yeah, I mean, you're you're not working less, but I, I guess. Does it make for longer days? Absolutely. But then you've, you've got that extra day that's off. Now, again, there, look, in, in my job, as long as I'm doing this show, as long as I'm doing my show, I'm, it's going to be five days a week. That's just the kind of decision, you know, I, I, I made because I think there's a certain expectation that when you turn on the program at, at 12 o'clock, you know, that I, I'm going to be here. And so that that's the decision that I've, I've made. And I think my employer is happy with that. But, I mean, there are, again, factory workers, like he was talking about, I mean, if, you, if you're working and as long as you can get the productivity and it's not like you have people, I don't know, that, that can't work the 10 hours, I would imagine a lot of people would much rather have those, those 10-hour shifts. Jeff, my husband's architect firm does the four-and-a-half-day work week without forcing 10-hour days. It creates higher productivity and happier employees. I will just tell you from personal experience, I, during the summer, I loved, I loved that Friday off. It was like... It was really like having that 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 third day, and I didn't. I hardly noticed the fact that you got to get in fifteen minutes earlier, or you stay fifteen minutes later, or however they made up the time. Dave downtown, Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my phone call. The, the sure. one thing I was going to say is, when when COVID first hit, we went to a reduction of hours, 
for the company that I work for. Everybody came in, everybody was jacked up to work less hours. We were just in better moods, sold more uh, inventory, and our competitor, they did the same. So it's pretty much an equal playing field. And I'm kind of in, in your situation where we have to be certain specific, specific, sure. specific hours. Now, my competitor uh, is closed an hour and a half early, and they sell probably about 20% more units than we do. And so, to me, two years later, the company who is our competitor, they sell more units, and it we're, we're still like this Neanderthal type of way of doing things that we can't look objectionably. Same thing like with Google. Google will tell you when your peak hours are. Mm-hmm. You know when your peak traffic. So to be open at 8.30, 9 o'clock at night or quarter to 8 when your majority of your business is done at 1 p.m., it just seems ludicrous. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm with you. Th- thanks for the call, Dave. And I think employers, I mean, I think employers are, are wrestling with this an entire concept. And I, again, I, the big push was for remote work. And, and I think what you're seeing, and at least what I'm starting to see, is that um, more and more employers are saying, you know, we, we just don't think for the majority of our workforce, we don't think that this works and we want people back in the office. So that's that's now the, the trend. And maybe a year ago you had employees who had perhaps a little bit more leeway. That's kind of disappearing. But I actually think as much as remote, if if we're not going to be able to do remote work, all right, the, the whole idea of the four or the four and a half day work week, it, if it works within a particular business model, I, I think that that's what people you know need to be open to. And again, I'm not saying that it works in every model that you have. Jeff, I work the weekend shift, three, um, 12 hours, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I get paid for 40 hours. I love it, right? So that's, I mean, again, you don't, the businesses, I'm not saying the business closes for that that fourth for that that third day. I mean, I think you know businesses have to be open and and maybe it's a challenge with trying to find people and stuff like that. but that's that's one of the things that I think would be really appealing to you know employees. If you're competing and you're trying to you know get somebody that's going to come work for you, and one of the things you offer is, well, we we offer four day weeks. It, it's ten hours a day, but you know you're going to have, you know, you're going to have, you know, whatever, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, or Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or whatever it might be. Jeff, as a delivery worker, I'm working 12 hours a day, five days a week. I'd love to go to four days, but customers wouldn't be happy. Right, that's, and again, I there, there are some jobs that you're just not going to be able to do that. If you're, you know, if you're a plumber, if you're in, you know, HVAC, you know, when the furnace goes out, you know, you have to have people on call who are ready to, to do this. But, you know, it doesn't work for everybody. But on the other hand, if you're a computer coder or you're somebody that works in a marketing department or somebody that processes insurance claims and things like that, the, the fact that, you know, you're four and a half days a week or four days a week, that's the type of thing that's uh, fine. Jeff, if you were to go back to the um, the four-day work week, you're basically getting 52 more days off a year when you work four 10-hour days. That would be appealing to many people. Yeah, I, I agree. I just I bring this up because they tried it in Europe, 
And on an experimental basis, and Europe is different than the United States. I, I understand all that. And it doesn't work for everybody, but it is something that I think employers need to think about if they can figure out how to make it work within a particular job. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, these are five-day-a-weekers. I know it. Let's find out what John McCure and Sandy Max have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News.